Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Alan Bovic. He's a professor. Alan, welcome back to the show. Glad to be back. I had fun last time. Yeah, me as well. And I, I honestly felt like we ran out of time. And so I really wanted to do a part two with you because I think the stuff we're actually going to cover today is kind of a little bit more up and coming, a little bit maybe more futuristic. And then a few things that have kind of been around for a few years, but maybe we, before we get into that, do you maybe want to just give people a quick intro of yourself, kind of your background, where you grew up and, and maybe your teaching career and being a professor, because I think that's where it will be a really good segue into what we're talking about today. Absolutely fine. I uh, grew up in Illinois, uh, north side of Chicago. Um, I went got all my degrees at the state school, the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, um, a very fine school, by the way. And um, I worked there and I, I completed my PhD dissertation with a brilliant man uh, named Thomas Wong. And I had a second advisor named Dave Munson as well. Thomas Wong was one of the inventors of video compression. So it was a great honor to work with him and to learn from him. Then I took a job, you know, I looked all over the place, uh, to interviewed, you know, many places at the beginning of the high tech boom. And I had like 20 interviews for, you know, positions in national labs and universities. And, uh, and I, well, I wanted to come to Austin because my advisor said they have a great future, Alan. And uh, I took his word and he was right. UT Austin has been a great place to be. Very cool. So give us a bit of background on the type of stuff that you teach and the research you're doing, because some very big brands and probably a lot of people listening actually use your technology every day without even knowing it. Well, no question. Um, so, you know, I work in the field called image processing and video processing, but my particular interests um, are also in visual neuroscience. So really I work in a cross-disciplinary realm between the two, uh, where I have become a trained visual neuroscientist. I've learned uh, quite a bit about how we see, and my greatest joy in research is finding theories of how we see and bringing them into algorithms that can be used in practical ways to affect things like streaming video, social media, pictures, uh, virtual reality, and, and other visual things. Uh, today, we're very fortunate that you know a bunch of our algorithms actually are used throughout the streaming and social media industries. And it's safe to say that about 80% of the bits that are crossing the internet are processed by algorithms that we developed. What do they do? Largely, they monitor measure and control the visual quality of what it is that you're seeing. So if you're enjoying your 
the the quality of experience that you're seeing on you know whatever streamer you're watching uh, that is at least in part owing to the work of our laboratory my wonderful students and I very cool so for people that are maybe doing something in the software tech space that could leverage your technology how do they actually get in contact with you and and then how can they leverage your technology and research to actually implement it into their product well i mean as far as the bigs uh when i say the bigs i mean the big companies like you know netflix and meta and amazon prime and youtube and so on well they we uh i've always had the philosophy that you know the work we do uh, that means all of our, we do conduct huge human studies of, you know, quality of experience and so on. Uh, we put all the data out there for the world. We don't hold it back or try to sell it. When we create algorithms, we publish them immediately and we put the code on our website. So we've always been super accessible and we kind of pioneered the free data set idea. Uh, before that, people were trying to make money off it, even as academics. Uh, and algorithms, they wouldn't share. They'd say, tough luck, you know, you figure it out. So we've uh, always trended against that. And because of that, however, uh, people learned about what we do very quickly. And we were approached by all the companies I mentioned uh, over time, starting with Netflix, who was one of our first, uh, you know, partners who's funded our research for the better part of a decade now right. in creating algorithms that are important for, you know, streaming and social media workflows. And they were joined by several of the other companies. I even work with a company in India called ShareChat who reached out to us. They're sort of like the TikTok of India. Cool. So basically you pop me an email. <laughs> All right. It's just very, very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into obviously like the video stuff makes a lot of sense, but I, and I know like AR and VR and kind of mixed reality and, you know, the metaverse and all this stuff people hear about some of those things have been around um, for a number of years now, but how do you see the future of those things? And, how does that play into your research and working with some of these brands and companies? Uh, sure. Well, you know, not all companies are working in the XR space openly, sure. but most okay. of them are in one way or another because everybody realizes this is really hard to do right, but right. everybody also realizes this is going to be really big. Now, right now, there are a few barriers. The main barrier is, well, one of the biggest barriers anyway is there doesn't exist right now a true augmented reality or AR device. You can't go on Amazon right now and buy augmented reality glasses. Um, right. So it's hard to you know commercialize something that doesn't exist. Um, you can, of course, buy VR helmets. A whole bunch of you know, companies have those and they keep advancing and that sort of thing. Um, so that's one thing. Now, uh, one thing though is that there is an announcement by Apple that you know by next year they'll be announcing something and they're calling it the Apple Reality Pro I hear which is a terrible name by the way they could probably come up with something better than that I think and I'm Hopefully. sure they they sure will they probably <laughs> surely will but there's some exciting things I um, I read into the the rumor mill <laughs> one is that their device will have eye tracking in 
Okay. okay. So we have VR helmets where we've had eye trackers built in and we've conducted research on that. So what is an eye tracker? So it's a device which you wouldn't even be aware of in whatever, say, glasses you're wearing and so on. Or you might inspect and find it, but it's you know very small form factor. It's something that can accurately track the direction of your visual gaze. Okay, now that's a pretty amazing technology. It's been around for 20 years and we've researched it for more than 20 years. And I have been waiting about that long for it to finally come into, you know, commercial uh, scale products. And I think right. we're just about to get there. Now, why is that so important to know where somebody's looking? Well, there's a number of reasons. One, you can, you know, in a mixed reality, if you know where somebody's looking, then you can put an object of interest there. Right. Right. Okay. So if you are, suppose that you have uh, augmented reality glasses and you uh, just took a flight to uh, Paris, you're looking around and your eyes are looking, you know, looking at this and that and so on. Well, the glasses could sort of do a help map the environment thing and show you, well, what, you know, I'm looking at this building. What is it? Up pops the name of the building, Notre Dame Cathedral, right? right. Uh, because just my eyes looking there, if I wanted to turn that on. But there's a more important and a little bit subtler technical reason that would be much less obvious to the user why it is so important. And that is that if in your goggles or your glasses or whatever, you are having video streamed to it, okay? Video is the biggest data, okay? Yeah. It's more than 80% of all internet traffic is video because it's such big data. So if you have video streaming into your helmet, say from another user, maybe you're talking to each other in, in like a virtual you know, phone call, kind of like FaceTime, but you're both 3D and looking at each other. Um, <laughs> sure. You know, Then you're sending video to each other over say wireless. It's really hard to transmit that. So that's why you need you know, video compression. You squeeze down that video and it only takes up one one hundredth maybe of the space it originally did. Um, and But nevertheless, when it arrives and they decompress it, it looks the same, they hope, okay? And often it does. Right. But it, virtual reality needs bigger videos. So you've got 4K television, right? right? Everybody does. But for VR, we think we need 8K or 10K, okay? okay. So suddenly the bandwidth goes up by, you know, five, to 10 times as much. Uh, and it's just ridiculous over wireless. You can't do it. So that's why knowing where you're looking helps. Oh, so you can already start to get it. So one is, well, you only need to you know, show what you are looking at. Well, it's not as simple as that because we have a field of view that goes you know, 180, right? In every direction. So, and you want all that. You want the periphery. You don't want to be looking at like you're looking through a toilet paper tube, right? Right. So what you do is you, you discover through eye tracking where the person's looking and you compress. So it's very high quality, right? Where they're looking. And then away from where they're looking, the quality goes down as you compress more and more and more and more. Okay. Right. But because you're being eye tracked, you won't know the difference. So to exemplify this, suppose you're reading a book. You know, I think whoever's listening to this could pick up a printed you know, page. And if you're reading that page, only the letters that your gaze is on are clear enough to read. Right. The ones out in what we call the periphery, you can't even read it because it's too blurry. That's because your retina, 
out there where the light strikes around the peripheral, you know, outside regions away from the center are much, you know, the resolution is much smaller. So we can exploit that with compression and maybe boost compression by five to 10 times. So, wow, we need five to 10 times as much resolution, but maybe we can compress five to 10 times as much. That's kind of a nice match there, right? Right. And then I would assume that you'd potentially know just based on where I am and what I'm looking at, where I'm going to look next. So you could load that in the background and then maybe the full scene in the background after like a minute or two kind of thing. Oh, less than a minute. Kevin, I, I must comment that you are very perspicacious indeed. Uh, so uh, predicting where a person will look next is very much of interest but not so easy, right? So imagine, sure. you know, you've got a, <laughs> you know, you've got a picture and it's got two attractive people. Some people will be attracted to one, some will be attracted to the other, right? Right. And well, you know, that's why deep learning is going to have a hard time in predicting where people look. And it won't be a fast way to replace eye trackers because every person's different. Okay, the deep learner won't know, you know, who puts on the headset and who they want to look at or what they want to look at. It's a hard problem. But eye tracking solves that, you know, it just actually measures where you're looking. So can you predict where you're going to look next based on like uh, sort of the momentum of your eyes? To some degree, yes. Okay. okay. Um, there's another factor. I've talked about eye tracking, but there's also head movement measuring. So okay. suppose you're wearing a augmented reality, you're walking down the street, you know, your eyes are moving, but yeah, your head may be moving significantly. And that creates tremendous problems because if you move your head quickly, if you don't, as you just suggested, have a bunch of that video ready to go of the real world around you, then there's going to be a latency issue where you said, uh-oh, what am I looking at? Just gray or something, <laughs> or right, an, right. an old version of the video or something. So you want to be up to speed. And that has big implications for you know memory, so much data. Uh, how do you represent it? Do you foveate that somehow? And also communications link, um, because you know you have to send more data if you're also saving the data that you might look at next. So that was a great question. Okay, but then, so, okay, so you built, say you build this, I, I want to use your eye tracking um, algorithm and head tracking and whatever other algorithms you guys have built. Obviously, there's a hardware component there. How do those two fit and play together? Because that's got to add a tremendous amount of complexity on top of all this stuff you just outlined not so much actually well first okay. of all let's look at just the eye tracker okay. the eye tracker is a device uh it basically casts a an ir you know kind of like your remote control for your television that's infrared radiation it bounces off you know various surfaces on the interior of your eye such as the um, the inner surface or the outer surface of the cornea or the crystalline lens uh, okay. and it compares the positions of the reflections uh, those are called Purkinje reflections. And um, that can be very accurate, first of all, but also very fast. You can do that easily in real time, 60 or 120 frames per second. You could do it with, and it's not very expensive. And then, but the data you collected is, is very low volume, okay? Eye tracking data just tells you what point you're looking at. 
Okay. Just the point. It's just two coordinates. You know, for those that had a little, you know, out, you know, high school math, x, y coordinate, one of them. It tells you where you're looking at that moment. So the data volume is not much increased. There isn't really much computation there. So then when you take that coordinate and use it to guide compression, okay, yeah. that might be more along the lines of what you're talking about. So does it increase the complexity of a Kodak much? I don't think so. I think we can go inside a standard uh, MPEG coder, say HEVC, um, and we can modify it to foveate the compression with very little extra overhead interesting okay so then just because like i just picture well obviously any of the ar glasses i've seen so far they don't really look like glasses it's like a full thing right like it's yeah. clear they're more like ski goggles or something like the hololens you know? <laughs> yeah exactly. you can't really buy yeah. that anymore unless you're like military budget you know <laughs> yeah exactly right and so like I guess maybe the better way to ask the question is like all this technology that you guys are doing, could you put in just like a regular pair of like Ray-Ban sunglasses or something? You know, that's a really great question. And by the way, um, I have, I recently purchased the thing called the Ray-Ban stories. Right. Uh, just because it's the most advanced AR device that consumers can buy. It's not really AR, but what it can do is obviously it can, you can take phone calls with it. You can play music from your iPhone or whatever phone you have. Uh, you can take pictures with it and it's got storage in it and you can take short videos with it. I mean, the glasses, the glass part itself is just standard Ray-Ban sunglasses. Right. But uh, I bring that up because, you know, the form factor is not substantially increased and anyway for i mean we'd eventually like ar glasses to be as lightweight as as any you know sunglasses we might wear today could we do it today probably not but i sincerely believe that within five years uh we'll be able to put the capabilities of an iphone into a pair of glasses wow. you know it might be a little bit you know heavier and so on but i mean People will buy it and then they'll, you know, it'll be popular. Billions more will be built into it. Miniaturization will continue as it always has. Has it ever? Sure. I mean, things have never gotten bigger, right? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, it's always the thinnest, fastest iPhone they've ever yes, made. Yes, <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, I'm convinced, you know, and I don't think I'm just being my usual optimistic self that within that time frame, we'll have, be able to have very powerful goggles. I think the bigger issues are you know in terms of perception and deciding what to do with ar and also the communication issues you know having enough bandwidth um over wireless links right well and then the privacy stuff too right oh that too golly you know i <laughs> i don't think anybody knows when i'm wearing these sunglasses that i could take their picture <laughs> <laughs> right yeah or a video enough. of them and so on and i have no plans unless a cop pulls me over <laughs> <laughs> fair enough yeah. um but yeah, yeah i think that's always been an issue of course but i mean um you know a long time ago uh, i remember in the 1960s when i was a kid my dad took me to the prudential building in chicago which was then the tallest building okay. and you know uh he took me to see the the exhibition for the picture phone and, you know, it was huge lines for this. And everybody's amazed that you could talk over the phone with pictures. And everybody yeah. thought it was like next year in the 1960s. Well, it didn't ever succeed, even though there were as many products along the way that tried. Didn't succeed until FaceTime, 
right? Right. And it that was the right. teenagers who did it, right? Yeah. And that's because nobody, it wasn't because it wasn't technologically feasible. It's because nobody, you know, wanted to answer the phone in their jammies or hadn't shaved or put on their makeup. And it wasn't appealing to people who could afford it. But then the kids could do it and they didn't care. You know, they just, you know, whatever. That's the best. So what am I getting at here? is that I think that these things will be overcome. And if everybody's got it and everybody can take a picture of anybody, you know, um, well, so what? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's not really any different than the phone, right? Like everybody's go anywhere. Everybody's got their phone out. They, they could be potentially taking your picture, but nobody assumes that everybody's just constantly taking your picture, right? It's a little bit more surreptitious, however, yeah. when it's your glasses and True. you can't tell, yeah. you know. And I mean, all you do, you put your hand up to your glass to adjust it while you're really taking a picture. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> you know, so I mean, there's might be issues, and I mean, I remember uh, there's a fellow named Steve Mann. Steve okay. Mann. Okay. Very famous for what he did was he wore a, you know, goggles. Uh, for years. <laughs> okay. You know, <laughs> he lived sort of a kind of like a, a VR, AR experience, you know, looking through the goggles, but it wasn't really augmented. Um, and he wore it around and he, I mean, he'd get up in the morning, put them on and walk around with these goggles. And, you know, can you imagine how that did things to his brain? I don't know. But I mean, he would, I met, there was a famous incident at McDonald's where somebody became very angry at him because he was clearly videoing because that's the, all he saw was what came through the camera and right. was presented to his eyes. And, you know, people can get angry and so on. So it will be a societal issue, um, you know, in regards, but we'll get past it. Yeah, that's fair. Cause we had Google glass a number of years ago when it came out and just like wearing it around, you could tell people were a little like what, what's happening. So yeah, yeah. it was interesting, but it was the I, first try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So, I'm curious, what's your thoughts on virtual reality? Because it seemed to be the next big thing, you know, three to five years ago. It kind of petered out. It seems to be a bit back. Like, where are we at and where do you think the future of that is? Oh, good question again. So uh, I think a big aspect of the big problem with virtual reality is a perceptual one. And that is that okay. most people who put it on, and play a game or whatever, they start to feel tired or headachey or eye strain or just want to get out of there and that kind of thing because of some kind of you know physical or visual discomfort. Uh, that's the biggest thing. And uh, we understand why that happens to a large extent. There's different sources of the discomfort, but the biggest source comes about because of what is called the accommodation vergence conflict. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's a vision science, visual neuroscience term, but let me explain it. Uh, anytime you're looking around the world with your eyeballs, your eyeballs are constantly focusing on what you're looking at at your point of gaze. Okay, so what you have is in your eye, you have a lens, it's called the crystalline lens, and it's constantly deforming in shape in response okay. to trying to focus on things. There are muscles that do that. They're called the ciliary muscles. They control the shape of the crystalline lens, all right? Now, the interesting thing is not only is the shape of the lens controlled so you focus, but once you've focused, it tells you something about how far away that object is. And that is sent to a certain area of the brain that focuses on 3D perception. It's called area MT or okay. area V5 has different names. 
Okay, and it's used to help gauge how far things are away. How much, just think of that, how much your crystalline lens focuses is used by your brain to help figure out how far away objects are. Now, another thing happens, and that is the two eyes. Okay, when you're looking in the three-dimensional world at objects, try putting, you know, your finger in front of your face and put it closer and farther while focusing on it. Your eyes start to cross as it gets closer. That is called vergence. Okay, your eyes naturally verge as you focus on objects in our three-dimensional world. Now, that's controlled by other muscles called rector muscles. They actually, you know, control, you know, the direction of the gaze of the eyeballs, especially when they verge in this context. So when they verge, that means that the images from the two eyes fuse into one image. And so you see one image instead of two. You don't see double in your natural vision. And that's called by way a cyclopean image. Okay, you can think of cyclops, the two eye sure. images sort of create one. But anyway, the amount that the two eyes verge creates another signal, a neural signal that goes to the back of the brain in the same area, MT. Okay? okay. Now, why is this important? Two signals, one from the lens, one from the vergence of the eyes. Well, normally it's great. They work together um, because the crystal, the, the signal for focusing helps you decide how much to verge in 3D, and the signal from verging helps you to decide how much to focus, change the shape of the lens. Right. Okay. So it's a, what we call in engineering a feedback control system. There's a lot of feedback back and forth between those two different and separate modalities of seeing. Now, why is this super important in virtual reality? Because when you've got a helmet on, that little screen is one inch away from your eyeball. Yep. And no matter what, you need to focus one inch away. Okay, right. you can't change it. You're focusing on that high resolution display one inch away, and that doesn't change. And so the signal sent to the back of your brain is, this is one inch away. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, however, when you're seeing 3D content, you know, you're looking way 100 yards away or right in front of you, all these different distances and depths, and those signals are sent. So you have a conflict. It's called the accommodation convergence conflict. By the way, accommodation is that focusing of the lens. Focusing the lens is called accommodation. So it's okay. a conflict. It sets up an instability with conflicting signals going to your crystalline lens and to your vergence. And this can actually oscillate. I mean, you don't see your eyeballs shaking or something like that, but it's an oscillatory mechanism and it gets unstable and it creates all sorts of you know, physical discomfort in your oculomotor control system. You know, the so, muscles get tired, basically, trying to figure out what to do. Okay. So so does that what can make people, like, nauseous? Yes. You know, nauseous. I mean, there's other things, like, you know, too much motion, uh, right. you know, vertigo, that kind of stuff. There's, it's, this is not, you know, these are all correlated, and they're all right. issues. But, you know, you can control the motion by having less motion, okay? Uh, but this doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. You know, the only thing you can do is to flatten out and make it less three-dimensional. Okay, yeah, because the first version of the Oculus, I remember getting it and putting it on. And I remember, like, trying out the little, like, roller coaster simulation and some of the, like, faster-moving things. And I was completely fine. But I, I got nauseous just walking around a simple 3D world. And I was like, it, it, it didn't really make sense to me. It was like, I'm just virtually walking in this 3d world but your point a second ago it totally makes sense now why 
that was the case. It could have been partly the conflict because you're seeing all these different depths yeah. and your brain is not able to process it properly. You know, it could also be just, you know, proprioceptive issues. You know, I mean, here you are moving legs, you can't see, <laughs> and, right. uh, you know, okay. and it's kind of, it's kind of a, you know, you shouldn't really use VR outdoors, right? Because you might step in a hole if you don't run into a car. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> you know, but also for perceptual reasons. Okay. Interesting. So. Where do you think the industry is going? Like, do you think VR has a future? Is it going to die off again? Is it just not ready yet? Where are we at? Well, I think VR does have, I mean, VR definitely has a future in gaming because it already sure. exists. And gaming is different because you can control the content. It's all computer generated, right? right? It's all computer generated. So you can control the content to try to ameliorate things like the, uh, you know, the AV conflict. Right. Okay. So there's different ways of controlling it so that they're, you know, maybe the flatten out the background, you know, and just the object you're looking at has depths, things like that. So, I mean, if there's no depth perception, then it kind of goes away. No issue. Um, your eyes kind of look straight ahead and the virgins doesn't really create this, you know, conflicting signal. Um, but um, I think that technology will help VR to allow us to watch movies in VR eventually cinema television and all that but the displays will have to change there's a type of display um you know that has lenses in it called you know a very focal lens okay uh presented to your eyes so really there's lenses as part of the display and so it can change the amount of focusing uh, and that could be responsive to what it is you're looking at so that could but you know help with the av conflict uh, so that the crystalline lens can be more aligned with the virgins, to put it that way. Um, however, that's cumbersome and expensive right now. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so it's hard. The only other answer really right now, at least when the immediate time frames of five years, say, would be to movie making would have to be specially designed for this. So you can control the content even of real cinema. Uh, a, a friend of mine named Marty Banks at Berkeley was consulted on the making of Avatar. And he basically did that in the making of that movie because that was the big 3D hit, right? And right. people generally didn't get sick as much watching that as they did a lot of other stuff that came after. Um, and that's because he was there uh, helping them arrange the cameras to accurately reflect our own you know, visual apparatus, the way the cameras verge. Two huge you know, cinematic cameras would be pointing in you know, a certain direction and also help them to flatten out the depths in it. So if you're watching Avatar and you're in the forest scene, you know, the blue beings or you know, the animals, you might notice that the background is pretty flat depth-free, but it didn't matter because you're looking at the blue people. But it did help with avoiding AV conflicts. Uh. So that's, a, that's another way. But I got to tell you, you know, uh, these things, that's, you know, that means you have to, you know, you can't watch old stuff. It's all going to be new stuff, specially made, and maybe that'll happen. But I think industry is very interested in AR. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. It seems that there's way more applications and almost just for the everyday person that maybe doesn't game, right? You could actually use AR probably throughout your day just doing many things you know could be definitely you know i'm i'm not sure i'm a proponent of people wearing augmented reality all day unless they can like switch it off and then you know actually look through just glass or right. flip it up i don't know um all these are good questions going forward um you know i i think that 
the idea of somebody wearing a device like that all day where they don't need to, it's a bit worrisome to me because, you know, it's got to be done just right. Because let me explain that. I'll give an analogy. One thing that's worried me about VR is kids. Right. Okay, kids sitting there playing games all for six hours in a row. Okay, and their, you know, their vision systems, there, there used to be a thought that the vision system was locked in after like six months of life. But okay. it's not true. It's just as plastic as the rest of our brain. Okay. Okay. It really is. Um, I was talking to Miguel Nicolelis, one of the world's most famous neuroscientists. In fact, he's a brain interface pioneer about this. And, you know, he affirmed this in his worry as well in this direction. And, um, you know, if you have like a five-year-old watching the wrong stuff where the 3D depths are wrong and the shapes, are, you know, the distances are wrong or so on, they're basically learning an alternate reality and their brain adapts to it. Oh, interesting. Uh, potentially, if they do it too much. And I worry about that because even today, kids who are looking at flat screens. Sure. You know, I mean, a lot of them are, have, are maybe losing their ability to, you know, really be active in the environment, be proprioceptive in 3D and be athletic and explore nature and that sort of thing. It, it worries me. And it worries me much more, though, if, you know, somebody's wearing a device for an extended period all day long. That, right. you know, I think we have to really watch. And it's not just babies. It's, you know, kids and who knows, maybe even couch potato adults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no fair. You're right. Well, if I wear glasses that alternate or my gives my brain different perception of depth and stuff because of AR. Yeah, interesting. That's actually I never really that never even crossed my yeah. mind or dawned you on may, me. Right? You may adapt to, you know, the device and then you get out in the world, you're not seeing the way you used to, a little bit off. I don't like that too much, you know. But I think responsible companies, uh, you know, like Meta. You know, who they have very powerful division in the meta reality where they have many, many visual neuroscientists and visual psychologists. Are, they're cognizant of these things, certainly. And uh, that's good. Interesting. So I'm curious then do you have any other predictions or examples to give people of potentially how to leverage the research that you and your team have, have done and are doing? Well, you know, with each new advancement in imaging and video and applications of it, there's new modalities and new aspects. So to give you an example, it's not a huge leap forward. Uh, I think that uh, high motion is becoming very important because people are getting really interested in live sports. Right. Okay. So, I mean, Amazon, YouTube, I have, you know, a lot of efforts in this direction, the money they're pouring into it. And, uh, you know, live sports on big screen means um, you really need higher frame rates. Right. So, you know, I mean, I grew up most of my life, everything was 30 frames per second. And then suddenly here we are, 60 frames is pretty standard. Who saw that coming? Just because they could do it from the increased bandwidth. But for live sports, you need higher frame rates, you know, 90, maybe 120 to really get it right. And by the way, especially if you're going to have high motion in virtual reality, you'll need right. higher, you know, high end, high frame rates because the eyeball's right there. If you don't have enough high frame rates, you get these sort of really annoying uh, distortions that are temporal or you know happen over time, where you know an object that's moving it looks like it's sort of stuttering along, and that's why it's called stutter when that happens. 
you know, you can see it's kind of a discrete, you know, and people kind of overlook it now, right. uh, even though you see it a lot in, you know, live action. Right. Um, but people are getting more and more discerning all the time, right? They expect more and more. And as their TVs get bigger, that's like 8K coming. I can tell you that's another topic, bigger TVs. Um, then, you know, it's going to be more and more of the experience. And, the, you know, we talk about immersion in the helmet or the AR device, we're going to have immersion in your house, in your living room as well. And you'll be more attentive to what it is that you're seeing. So high frame rates, another direction uh, that's important. And so, you know, if you're in that space, uh, if you're NFL uh, or, you know, basketball, if you're the NBA and so on, you should be looking at this kind of technology. So I'm speaking to those kind of people right now. Got it. Okay. So, I think the challenge that I've always had with like 8K or whatever, even 4K, arguably, there's just not enough content. And obviously, like it has to be shot at, you know, those resolutions are higher. But how does that, okay, like I get that TVs are getting bigger, people want bigger TV, especially for sports. NBA and big organizations like that can afford to shoot their stuff in 8K as long as people have the technology. But, but how do I guess like, regular companies kind of do that like is it just they need to invest in that is it affordable or or like how does maybe like a startup or or a company that's not like a netflix or the nba leverage some of that technology can they or is it still kind of years out well if we're talking about you know higher resolution yeah. you know it's got to be the big guys okay, okay. who are really okay. rolling out that means you know uh, not just, you know, Silicon Valley, but the big television makers, okay. right? uh, yeah. the display makers and that sort of thing. I mean, you know, 8K is here. I got uh, an email from Amazon Prime, okay. you know, Prime, you know, Amazon yeah. Prime shopping. Uh, it was an advertisement for 8K televisions, you know, which kind of surprised me. But, you know, Samsung is offering them now for about $4,000. Yeah. They'll be good quality. Sure. So, you know, I remember what before 4K, we're watching what we called HD yeah. Uh, back yeah. then, 10, 1080p. Uh, 4K is, you know, twice the size in both directions. And we all kind of were, you know, when I say we, I mean us, the population of the United States. Oh, yeah. What do we need 4K for? First of all, there's no content. And their televisions are, you know, $4,000. <laughs> well, look now, you know, yeah. you both go buy your 4K television for 200 now or go to your Target. That's all they sell. And there's plenty of 4K content now. It's streaming all the time and even in real time. So, you know, that is a done deal. In fact, the compression standard, HEVC, is tailor-made for 4K too. And it okay. gives, you know, increased compressions on that, makes it all possible with very high quality. So 8K, oh goodness, yes. I mean, recently they were down, they were getting ready, or maybe they did it already. They're imaging the Titanic in 8K. So you can buy That's cameras. Yeah. Those cameras are expensive, yes. I mean, 4K cameras now, you know, Oh, 5K, you know, buy it cinematic. But 8K is much more. The televisions are much more expensive. But hey, all you need to do, all you need is a larger population buying it. You do need more content, very limited. But remember, I remember when I couldn't get my hands on 4K content to do science research on. Right. You okay. know, it was hard to get any from any of these companies. They were all very protective and so on. Well, that's not, that's totally changed now. And it will with 8K as well. And even, Yes, dare I say, 16K. You know, last time, did I did I tell you about Fahrenheit 451? No, uh, no. Okay, let me tell you about that. I mean, Fahrenheit 451 is a, 
It's a book by Ray Bradbury, a great visionary. And uh, he, I mean, it was famously about book burning and a dystopian society, right? Okay. Um, and, you know, that's what, why they give it to school kids in high school to read, you know, Fahrenheit 451, you know, well, let's avoid this, you know, totalitarian society. But what I, re I read it not too many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, and what really struck me was another visionary aspect. So he describes, you know, people in these horrible jobs and they come trudging home, you know, with no rewards in life to their house. They walk in the front door and all four walls of every room in the house are covered with a display screen. Okay. Okay. And what's happening? It's the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> of everybody in the world can you know, because there's cameras hidden behind it and you walk in and people start yelling at you you know why don't you do a better job at work you know you should treat your wife better you know whatever and it's just you can't escape it because all four walls there's somebody there who's criticizing you you know or whatever you know imagine the the social media gone to the absolute extreme now of course that was a dystopian novel I don't think that's going to happen. I think that larger screens will be used in beneficial ways, not only for entertainment, but for many other things in science and that sort of thing. But my point is, you know, Ray Bradbury saw it around 1960, maybe when that was written, right. 1950. And yeah, he was right. It's coming. We're going to have wall size screens. Interesting. One, and I don't know if you have the answer to this, but I, I, it's always kind of fascinating to me. How come TVs and computer monitors aren't the same? Like there is, there's just one you go by, like the technology is different, but you know, we, they share so many things so similar or am I totally wrong there? Well, you're not wrong because you can go out and buy an expensive computer monitor yeah. or you can buy a cheap TV. Yeah. Okay. Now on my desk, my computer monitor yeah. that I use is a big 4k telev television. Okay. okay. It's a, you know, huge monitor. I, I have a standing desk and my monitor is, you know, a 50 inch screen. I love it. You know, I can walk around the room and still see and read everything, walk back over. It's a television. I mean, what is a television? It's a monitor with a receiver. Okay. Right. And the receiver has, you know, video codecs in it and so on, all that kind of stuff, but it made the antenna and so on. So they shouldn't be different and displays shouldn't be more expensive unless they're special purpose for like science studies or something. So I'm very happy with my monitor, which happens to be a television. And so, you know, Hey, I have no problem connecting my computer. I just plug in the HDMI. Right. <laughs> so it's easy. So, you know, yeah, you can talk about a, a monitor having potentially higher resolution, yes, or higher frame rates and so on. If you're doing graphical research or something like that, yeah, buy a graphical display for sure. But if you're, you know, you know, Joe Schmo at home, and I don't mean to pick on Joe, he's a wise guy, mm -hmm. buy a television, spend $200 on it, put it on your desk, and it's a fantastic monitor for anything you're likely to do uh, with your computer. And yeah. you can watch TV on it. A hundred percent. No. Okay. No, I've done similar stuff to that before. And depending on where I'm working in the house, sometimes I like, you know, just air airplay to my TV and use that as a monitor. It's great. Like I love it. So yeah, I was always kind of, I was wondering if there was like really a big technical difference, I guess, or from there can side, be, right? there yeah. can be if yeah, you need I guess. special capabilities, but sure. look at me, here I am, Mr. Video. Yeah. I use a television as my monitor. Interesting. So uh, we're kind of coming to the end, but is there any advice that you would give to 
entrepreneurs or startups or even people that work at big companies that maybe want to get into the space or are in the space because this stuff's coming it's here and i think obviously to your point like really all the big companies are using your technology right yeah they are and so let me i, I think you've asked that a couple of times i haven't really answered it quite right yet so let's think about you know a small enterprise that's trying to enter the space broadly speaking okay, okay. so I think number one is there's no denying it that um, with almost anything we're doing, and the big companies realize this, the streamers, social media, everybody, is that you know you can't really get away from AI, and I'm sure. using that term very broadly. You know, so you you've got to you've got to have a strong component on your team of you know AI type. Um, you know, researchers and developers and thinkers, thinkers. Now the thing is, you know, AI, uh, as my friend Nicolaelis uh, says, AI is just curve fitting on a massive scale with millions of parameters. And he's right. So you need to be able to enter a field. Uh, if you're trying to do something different with say television or with social media, you need to be able to access lots and lots of data. All right, if you're not gonna, if you're gonna try to do something without being able to gather a lot of data, whether it's crawling the internet or whatever, you know, or working with a, a content partner who's willing to provide data or something, you're not going to succeed because you're not going to be able to compete. So that's, uh, I mean, this is kind of entrepreneurial advice that has, you know, nothing to do with like the business side or being, you know, proactive and never giving up and all that kind of stuff. This is a practicality that I think would have to be incorporated in anybody's business plan. Right. Uh, of a of a company entering the visual space okay that's number one number two don't forget you're you're offering things that are for humans to watch so you can't forget the human and that means a lot of things not only the content that's attractive or appealing or a fun game or a fun show or whatever but also from the neuroscience level okay? you need to design whatever it is you're doing if appropriate some things that won't be appropriate for that human receiver right after all our brain half of our brain is implicated in vision okay it really is and it's all calculation at the neural level so that's the receiver you should account for it if appropriate not everything needs that of course interesting no i i think that's really good advice and that was kind of one i think the my earliest criticisms of, of some of this stuff is like just just because you have access to VR doesn't mean it should be in VR or, or whatever, right? And just because you you build it in VR doesn't mean it's good, and it doesn't mean that you're going to get a ton of people using it, right? It's mm -hmm. like just use VR just for the sake of using VR. Sometimes makes sense, sometimes doesn't make sense. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think it'll have so many beneficial applications as it keeps developing, entertainment as well as you know, like medical. Just imagine right. what you can do, you know, uh, that surgeon is, you know, we already have microsurgery where they were these things and so on. But what if, you know, you are inside the patient's body with a little robot tool and you are seeing it very high resolution in three dimensions because of the VR device. I mean, wonderful, right? Yeah, that that's very cool. But we're, we're kind of out of time. So how about we close the show with mentioning 
where people can actually maybe go see some of these algorithms, start playing with some of this stuff and, and get in contact with you and uh, your researchers? Well, you know, if you Google my last name, B-O-V-I-K, you will land on my webpage very quickly because there's only about five of us Boviks in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, you land on my website, then you'll immediately find my laboratory where we have a wonderful webpage that lays out, uh, there's a section on algorithms, there's a section on human study data, uh, there's a section on papers and uh, theory and all that, and my email. Happy to talk to anybody who wants to talk about these wonderful, fascinating topics. You know, and, um, that's the easiest way. Perfect, Al. Well, I really appreciate you again taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Thank you so much, Kevin. As usual, it was a lot of fun. Thanks very much. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.